When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I'm back from my trip in Memphis, Tennessee, where I got to do a little bit of conservation-minded activities. And we have a great interview today with Bethany Bethard. And before we dip into that, I want to go more into what I found to be interesting about Memphis as it relates to conservation. Two things immediately stuck out to me, of course. I had to, one, see the Peabody Ducks in their daily duck march. That's very cute. And the backstory about that is really fascinating. If you go to the Peabody Hotel, you can learn about the backstory yourself. I don't want to give it away. And two was visiting the Bass Pro Pyramid, the Bass Pro Shops at the Pyramid, as they call it. It's the largest freestanding elevator, I think, in the world, too. And it's your conventional Bass Pro Shop, or Cabela's, but on steroids. There's also... The Big Cedar Lodge, there's a lookout, a restaurant, several restaurants. In addition to the typical aquarium kind of exhibit they have, they had gators, alligator gar, trout, catfish, and many other types of species. I was very impressed and blown away by the presentation, the offerings. It was a really nice attraction and definitely worth going to because I went there for an event related to Freedom Fest. And I spoke about firearms at Freedom Fest, so you'll see me post more about that. But I got to do some conservation-related activities that don't really entail hunting or fishing in Memphis, and it was great to go there. It's an interesting place, obviously the birthplace of rhythm and blues. So yes, if you're attending a conference in Memphis like I was this past week, you can do some conservation-related activities or see the fruits of conservation there, like I did in Memphis this past week. Now on to our special guest for today, Bethany Bethard. She is a homeschool mom of five, avid outdoors woman, military spouse. She has such a fascinating life story. She's based out of Oklahoma, and we connected at the recent POMA conference, and I just loved learning about her story. She was one of our recipients of the Toyota Scholarship, nominated by Kevin Paulson, and I think you're going to really like what she has to say. She has a really cool perspective on things, putting her on your radar now because she is destined to do phenomenal things. Here's my conversation with Bethany. Bethany, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Could you introduce yourself to my listeners if they're unfamiliar with you? Yes, my name is Bethany Bethard. I am a Oklahoman. I'm an avid sportswoman. I'm a mom of five. I'm a homeschooling mom, a military wife, and I'm an avid outdoorsman. I, I freelance right about the outdoors as well. And um, yeah, I'm all about hunting and conservation. How did you get interested in hunting? Um, I actually grew up in a hunting family. I mean, I have pictures of my great, great grandpa. I share them often of him and he was a trapper and 
Um, so it's kind of been like a hunting legacy, each generation with their own really like interest. But um, yeah, it was all about just kind of carry on this American hunting tradition in my family. And I didn't really hunt much as a kid, uh, as far as like, you know, actually going hunting. Um, I lived on 55 acres. So, you know, predators and small game and things like that, we did all the time. But Um, when I got to be an adult, I really was like, okay, like I really want to pursue this and, uh, yeah, just kind of started my journey and here I am. (laughs) What has been your favorite type of hunting since you've started it? Oh, I've had a lot of memorable hunts. Um, but I definitely love like elk hunting, big game, um, deer hunting. Those are probably my top hunts, but I really love it all. I strive to be just a a well-rounded outdoors woman. I want to be able to do all of it. And so I've really pushed myself to find mentorship. Thankfully, I have some amazing friends that um, have taken me under their wing. And, um, you know, I do a lot of solo hunting. I killed my first um, elk cow by myself here in Oklahoma. And uh, yeah, I just, I I love all of it, but definitely big game. And Oklahoma, how much of a backdrop would you say, or an underrated backdrop rather, is it for outdoor pursuits in the time you've spent outdoors there? Oh, it's, it's definitely underrated. I feel like Oklahoma has such a wide variety of wildlife. Um, you know, we have everything from the elk herds here, which is a special draw to, you know, black bear, um, you know, I believe the flyways shifted slightly. So I think our waterfowl has really increased in the last several years. Um, at least in my personal experience, I've really seen those numbers, um, increase. So I think, um, that Oklahoma really has a lot to offer. And I think that the wildlife department has done a really amazing job at fostering those, um, species as well. What has it been like teaching your kids or getting them exposed to the outdoors? Because Five kids is a lot. I bet the outdoors helps with um, allowing them to become aware of their surroundings, mold them into model citizens, care about conservation. What has it been like? And and do your kids like the outdoors? Um, So actually introducing my kids into the outdoors goes hand in hand to my personal story. Um, I, we had purchased a hunting lease with some friends in um, Southern Georgia. And I just started sharing like our family experience of like, you know, cutting lanes and yeah, five kids is, uh, it seems like a daunting task, but they don't all show up at once. You know, you grow with each kid and, um, it's kind of like getting them into the outdoors is a slow progression. Uh, I'm not pushy. I just think that they all need to be exposed to it. I'm a big outdoors mom anyway. So, um, my kids are outside all the time. Um, and so, being active and pursuing wildlife or habitat management, you know, cutting lanes, filling feeders, whatever, things like that just kind of goes along with it. And they have grown to love it. Each one of my kids has their own interests. And I try to foster that. My oldest um, has autism and he really likes doing the prep work, you know, checking the cameras, filling the feeders, you know, um, he, there's certain hunts that they like more each one of them. Um, my girls, uh, really like deer hunting. And so I really try to, um, expose them without being super pushy. And then also like 
you know, gear like their Christmas gifts around outdoor stuff. I remember one year I got them all nature backpacks and I filled it with like just, you know, a, the backyard guide to birds and a little bird watching binoculars and stuff. So, so I really try to foster that love. And, you know, recently we've been fishing a lot um, and they've been pretty good. Um, my daughter caught a, like a five pound bass. It was pretty big. And, and so, yeah, it's been really exciting seeing them grow in their own ways. That's really cool. I don't have kids yet, but I have a niece and a nephew. And my niece expressed to me recently, I want to go fishing with Aunt Gabby. And I have uh, friends who have kids and they've all said like, yes, could you please teach your kids? So it's so exciting even to watch, you know, secondhand, thirdhand uh, with others handling their kids. And um, I hope to have that in the future for myself too. But no, it's amazing. And and when we got to meet and and I'll preface our conversation by saying that we met at Poma and I want us to segue into this too, before we delve into some really interesting kind of cultural stuff we were talking about offline, but we met and connected at the recent Poma conference in Broken Arrow. You won a Toyota scholarship And I want you to highlight how you have become involved in the outdoor industry and what you hope to do, because you have a really, I think, fascinating story. I think you'll be able to communicate really well to women. Uh, That's often a stubborn demographic to reach into, especially women with kids sometimes for hunting. But talk all about this. Like, how'd you get roped into the Toyota scholarship? And and what was your assessment of the POMA conference? Um, So uh, getting into the industry, like I said, I had, I have always kind of shared my life on social media, um, being a military family. That was a way that broadly all of our family could kind of see what we were doing. Um, and so when we lived in like Hawaii, we did a lot of like hiking and beach stuff. Well, when we moved to Georgia and we got that deer lease, I just still did that. And then people just started kind of following and like, you know, really enjoying that. We redid this nineties camper. My parents gave a, gave us a 91 pull behind camper for a hunting lease so that we could, you know, stay out there all the time. And we remodeled it and completely redid the inside. And I was just sharing that. And so people started really, Oh, like you're a mom and you're doing this. You know, I like doing that too. And how are you doing it with your kids? And um, at the time I had four kids and then I got pregnant and I was still out there doing it. And um, I really have a heart to share with moms that just because you're a mom doesn't mean you need to kill your, you know, individualism and you should still have things that you're fostering for yourself. And for me, hunting and fishing um, and conservation all ties in with my duty as like a mother and homemaker and that's how I provide for my family, you know, and conservation is how I continue this legacy for the next generation. And it's this hunting legacy that I've talked about doesn't just die out with me. And so, um, I had started, you know, getting in with some women hunting groups and writing a little bit. And I got connected with, uh, Kevin from hunting life and I started writing for him and he nominated me for the Toyota scholarship. And, um, I had been told for a long time, you need to get with POMA. Like if you want to, you know, be in the industry, you want to meet some people like POMA, POMA, POMA. And I was like, okay, well, I'm finally doing this. And yeah, it was great. I made so many connections. I knew like two people whenever I left, I'm pretty sure I at least introduced myself and got a card from everybody that was there. Um, Yeah, it was so great. And I think, you know, being in that network, being able to, you know, um, engage with other people that's been in the industry and introduce people that I know that are kind of where I am, um, and show others, like you said, it's hard to tap into that mom. And the reason why is because there's just not a lot of relatability. If I'm looking at somebody that doesn't have kids that gets to go to hunts all the time, you know, or whatever, that's not relatable. 
I am your average mom. I like, I don't get paid to hunt. All the hunts that I post is like bootstrap, either my property, my friends, like things that I have really done. Um, and I don't get to go out there all the time. And so I make the most of the times that I do get to go. I try to involve my kids as much, but I also try to go alone or with friends and foster, like being able to have that break uh, at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, I really hold true to authentic, shareable content because this is my life, really how I'm doing it. Um, and yeah, I've been blessed along the way with the scholarship and just POMA and meeting people. And it's been, it's been amazing. It's a good group to get involved in. I, whenever I bring on other POMA members into the podcast, we always talk about how wonderful it is. And we have some very positive plans for the future because we we know we have to reach more people. And there are authentic ways to do it. As a board member, I'm very conscious about that. I was part of recruitment efforts, so I know exactly you know how, how things go into that. And I don't think we struggle with it. We're, we're slowly but surely reaching more people. And n- new studies actually show, because everyone's like, there's always been a woman deficit. And, and that is true. But that one study we had talked about, and that's been highlighted all over the news, says that women have been hunting almost as long as men have, almost on an equal footing. What what's about what about that study fascinated you and intrigued you? You know, I think it just goes back to like there's just been a stereotype that, you know, women were the gatherers, men were the hunters. And the more that we're actually looking into the numbers and seeing, um, you know, just in recent history too, like I follow a lot of accounts that share like old photos from like the 30s and stuff. There's so many women that hunted. And I just don't think that it's been represented well. And so it's really interesting to me to see like all of a sudden, like the, oh yeah, women been hunting, you know, but not like this overtime, like understanding of like, um, you know, hand to mouth societies like have been doing it for a really long time. Um, yeah, it's just, it was really interesting. And, and I know that we spoke about, um, the recent findings of, um, the archaeologist team, and they found that hunter in Peru, when they were unearthing the um, the remains, they actually found the hunting like sack or whatever stuff first. And they were like, oh, this must have been a really big, like, you know, warrior, this hunter. Like, you know, they found like certain stuff that would have went with big game hunting. And then further of the excavation unveiled that it was actually a female next to it. And so... Um, it was really like, you know, it kind of shook them because they were like, wow, we thought this whole time that this, this was a man, but no. Um, and I went on to do some more research to find that, um, that, you know, cause they, they were like, well, maybe this was like an outlier, like just a one time, but actually 429 skeletons out of 107 burial sites in North America and South America, um, periods of that time, 27 only 27 actually had hunting tools with them. 11 of those were female. And so, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see that it's, and 15 were men, um, that they say that the women hunter actually could have matched men up to like 40% actually being women the whole time since, you know, prehistoric. So it's been really interesting to see like the archaeology findings to back up the study of them saying that. So it does put kind of a closes the door on that women have never been doing this and kind of sheds misconceptions. So I I had a feeling that that would be kind of identified because of Mm -hmm. archaeological digs. Like it wasn't that women were just 
in the sidelines. And I think as more things are uncovered, a lot of previous misconceptions will be shed. And similar to this, I know people talk about bringing in women, broadening the base to women. And there's also this discussion. We've talked about this as well offline about how do you expand to maybe non-traditional or maybe displaced or perhaps uh, demographics in the country that haven't really hunted in a long time. They may have hunted um, non-white populations, of course, um, in the past, but they've kind of been displaced from it, living in the urban cities, a little remote from it. So what in your mind is a effective way to broaden hunting and even fishing or, or the greater outdoors conversation and activity to, let's say, non-white demographics, because everyone's like, well, we're suffering from, you know, we're not reaching to these new people. And and people have talked about how do you expand to different diverse audiences and, and niches, and sometimes they're effective, sometimes they're not. So what is your recipe for successfully reaching and broadening the outdoors to a more diverse audience, a more participatory uh, kind of diverse set of folks in the United States? Um. Yeah. So I feel like I, you know, I've been in this circle for a long time, you know, um, for those that don't know, I am biracial and I have dealt with a lot of, um, you know, this, these conversations. And I really actually like it because I feel like these are the conversations that need to be had and said. And I think a lot of it is like just as they do with the women and they're not being their representation, representation is the biggest thing. Um, and it kind of sounds like an easy fix, but like, it's not happening still, you know, um, if I can't look at a, you know, organization or businesses branding their, their social media, their publications, um, and see something that I can resonate with as in another person of color, a mom, a woman, you know, then I'm probably not going to buy into that. And I think reaching the people that are in those, um, you know, demographics, if they can't see themselves there, I always say this saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And if they can't see somebody that they can relate to like, Oh, you know, maybe the connection was lost for them somewhere down the line. It's not that they, they have maybe never hunted, but somebody in their family comes from a hunt. We all come from a hunter gatherer society. And it seems like it's so, um, like far off. Like, you know, I know, especially in like the black community, they're like, Oh, like, you know, black people don't hunt. That's not true. There's so many black people that hunt and there's so many, you know, people on social media that could be utilized to share this message. But there's also so many that have continued the black hunting tradition that are also not being highlighted. Like it's still there. Like I, I spoke to a man, um, a while back that grew up in a all black hunting club and in Mississippi. And, um, he was eight in the eighties and the president of the club was 80 in the eighties. And he said, you know, it was such a wealth of knowledge of these men that have, and it was a black hunting club that had been passed down since slavery. And they own like 10,000 acres. It was a really, neat story, Alec Harvey. Um, he's been on some podcasts and, um, I feel like we just need that reconnection, you know, like, you know, and it's not just for blacks, you know, native, the Hmong community has a great, you know, hunting heritage story. Um, and bringing people back to that, that culture, you know, like American culture, like, you know, we think as like hunters, we can, we can resonate with that American hunting culture, you know, going with our grandpa or, you know, or, you know, our uncle or like, we can like 
connect to that. And, you know, or I can give that to my kids. If you're a new hunter, you like, like you said, you want to pass it on, you know, nieces and nephew, like you feel like this duty to do this. Um, people just need that connection and they need genuine, um, stories, like not just like a paid model, you know, saying, Oh, check in the box. Yeah. We're DIE, you know, like, no, like actually, no, this is, you know, so-and-so you can go follow him. He actually, hunts and fishes and he shares his story and he's diverse and it's, you know, um, not just inclusion either. Like this is, Oh, here's a group for you. Only all, everybody looks like you. Everybody's the same. And I really think that we're just missing the nail on the head with the whole, you know, I R three and just diversity. Like it could be done, but it's one person at a time. And, uh, it's a big bear to tackle for sure. Because like you said, there is people that have never had, um, exposure at all. Um, but there's in general, just not even diversity, just everyone in the United States overall, uh, hunters are just such a small percentage. There's a lot of people that have not had exposure. So yeah, there, I think there's just means overall, just more, you know, boots to the ground and exposure for people, but yeah, connection representation is a big thing for me. It absolutely has to be meaningful because no matter who you're talking to, whether it's someone in the city, that that can encompass a lot of people of all different racial backgrounds and people in more rural settings, women, what have you, you have to be authentic. And I think not giving people like a special awkward treatment, like a white knighting or something like that, mm-hmm. being really awkward, that is not helpful. And then the other extreme of, you know, we want to exclude people from certain groups. I don't think that's healthy either, but I think just... If, they, if someone is your friend and you're introducing them to hunting and fishing, you don't treat them differently than you would someone else. You right. treat them equally on equal footing and say, this is a great activity. You're going to love it as much as I do. Here are the tools that you need. I'm going to show you how to do it. Then you can do it on your own. And I think mm-hmm. so many companies sometimes just emphasize, yes, we're checking a box. And like you said, yeah. they don't meaningfully reach people of different demographics who have historically done this, but maybe it's been lost a few generations because they've moved to the cities or maybe the tradition wasn't mm-hmm. handed down immediately. And so I think sp- spokespeople like you can help kind of bridge the gap and show that, yes, this has been done for generations. My family's been doing this here. Uh, these are the brands that represent my lifestyle really well and and who who want to share our stories in a meaningful manner. And so, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's been a big conversation about how do people reach new audiences of people who would be amenable to doing these activities and how do you do it without being cringe? (laughs) Right. And we actually have to, and for the kids, uh, you know, we actually have to go to those inner city schools. Exactly. We actually have to go and like I said, boots to the ground and like, you know, try to reach because they're not the ones that are signing up for, you know, the wildlife department camp, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're, so we really got to get in there. And, and that also goes back to representation. They're going to buy into it. If you have somebody that they can see their self being and, and that's why another reason why I really post a lot, because whenever I was 12, I felt like I was the only, you know, mixed country girl in the world (laughs) like that, you know, I just felt it was very isolating. It was a lonely place. You know, I didn't grow up with a place that was very diverse and, um, you know, my parents, thankfully just really fostered, like, just be yourself. And so, uh, I love that now that I can be that for other people. And I have people that follow me that, you know, message me when their daughter gets a deer and she, I'm her favorite account and I'm on their, you know, big buck down, you know, call list. And I love that because I'm actually being 
the person that they can see being whenever they're older. And I love that. I love that. People should have sources and individuals to go to. And if you're already having that in your industry career, that's a good sign that people are trusting you and entrusting their social media posts to you and, and looking out to you to help them or give them confidence. And, and that's a great thing to have. You don't need to have tens of thousands of followers to be doing that. You can be influencing even in a smaller dimension um, like you are doing too. So I think that's really model example for others to emulate instead of just like, here are products to throw at, or here's, you know, like this, I, I see some other stuff where it's kind of like commercialization and, and it's okay to advertise products on occasion, but I see like, that's the only thing a person will do. And it's like, ah, oh, where's the conservation? Where's the family ties? Where's this? Where's that? So I think that's really great. You bring that and offer that to the table, Bethany. And what issues in terms of conservation really animate you? I know you were telling me you're interested in following public policy a bit more, but is there anything concerning you more immediately to you or that you see happening um, that could threaten conservation and these sporting activities and, and inhibit your kids and, and other kids from learning about these activities? Are there any threats to these activities that you're worried about? Yeah, I really do want to get more into, you know, policy and stuff. I, I did a lot of work with um, the National Wildlife Federation and and even this the NWTF and stuff. And, um, you know, I really feel like just overall, I, I want my, like, you know, getting my kids involved with conservation. I really try to, um, I love the outdoor stewards. They started this trophy trash thing and we actually yeah. walk around, um, and I got the trash bags. So my kids love it. Cause they're like their size and, um, picking up trash. And, um, I feel like just habitat management at like the ground level. I feel like there could be so much more use if Pete, the wildlife department would open up some of that conservation work to civilians, you know, like everybody else that's, you know, being a part of it. I know I say civilians because I hunt a military installation a lot. And so um, we go and we, it's obviously uh, eligibility required to be on the post. And um, it's a very small management team for like 92,000 acres. I mean, they probably have less than 20 people on their staff, including wardens. And so um, I feel like it's concerning that there's a lot of legislative work. There's a lot of money that goes into stuff, but really like the recruitment of just like your everyday people, like, Hey, let's get boots on the ground. Let's, you know, plant some seeds. Let's do some trees. Let's trash. Like let's, you know, I really would like to see more of initiative on that level. Um, and letting people like actually know, because not everybody like us, like pertain, like really start, like, you know, I'm just really starting to get into like legislation and stuff like that. There's a lot of people that don't to lands. Um, whenever they're, or my grandkids, you know, and so really protecting these lands that we have and making sure that they stay. Cause I know that there was a lot of here in Oklahoma, um, in the recent past, not wanting the wildlife department to cure any more land. Um, and that, that was a voted on, um, it didn't pass, but, um, you know, that it's a scary thing to think that, you know, they might not have access to places to hunt and fish and, you know, engage in recreation. So, yeah, it's definitely, it, it, there's a lot of things that's concerning. I mean, I think we could probably have a podcast about that in itself, but um, yeah. I think also paying attention to what's happening in your state, weighing in on yeah. comments, because sometimes crazy provisions will get slipped into your state department agency. And mm -hmm. most of the time, these are like 
proposals that'll usually never pass, but you have to be vigilant and careful because sometimes it could be a very innocent sounding thing, but it actually could lead to the further stripping of your opportunities to go fishing and hunting. So you have to be careful even at the state level, even if you have a pro hunting state wildlife agency, you never know, like animal rights advocates could slip in some sort of petition. It happens sometimes. I think I saw something in Virginia not too long ago, but it was defeated, never passed um, even at that like kind of uh, stakeholder level, but it was really mm-hmm. comfortably close. So I think paying attention to what happens in your backyard is extremely important to know what types of accessories and tools you could use on public lands, because we do see some proposed phase outs of lead tackle, lead bullets. That may sound like yes. nothing, but it can add up to a lot for a family struggling, you know, with inflation and the high cost of things nowadays. And and lead components are a lot cheaper than some of the alternatives, uh, if we're being plain spoken here. Um, there, yeah. So it, it's cheaper for families to use what is easily available and obviously not to, to waste it. I think people know how to take care of themselves and leave their surroundings better. But even simple stuff like that and, and creating economic barriers to these sports. For me, we talk about this all the time on podcasts, but I see that and it really infuriates me that people sometimes in conservation are pushing that. They're like, this is better for you and you need to do this. And I'm thinking we're going to create economic barriers to disadvantaged families and people who are not wealthy, who want to partake in the outdoors by imposing these barriers. And we can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, I have a large family and a military. And so I definitely could see where, you know, economic barriers do play a part. And there's people, um, you know, like you said, like, you know, imposing legislation that makes it even harder <laughs> for, you know, people. I know, Um, there's been a lot of that in Oklahoma, just, um, you know, disagreement on, you know, license sales and things like that too. Yeah. It can boil down to a lot of different things, the licenses, the type of Mm -hmm. accessories or the bullets or tackle you use, but that's why you have to stay engaged and involved. And I'm glad you're paying attention to what's happening in Oklahoma. You've worked with a few brands so far in your involvement in the outdoor industry. So what brands really speak to you and really reflect kind of your persona? Yeah. So I'm a part of DSG hunt team and, um, I have worked really close with Rachel Hedrick. She's the, um, manager and I've, I've actually congratulated her. I was like, I don't know if you know this, but I'm pretty sure you're the only all women's pro staff team that has a diversity on it. And she said, yeah, I am aware of that. And, uh, you know, she's been really, you know, they sought me out and, and, um, the women that have been on the that are on the team are great. I love that it's for women by women. I mean, I love the gear I've hunted, um, all the seasons in it. And, um, yeah, it's something that I definitely could get behind. And I, and the women that are on the team are women that I would, you know, generally be friends with, even if I wasn't on the team. And a lot of them I actually followed before I was on the team, uh, and had conversations with. And so I, I definitely love DSG, um, do something great DSG outerwear. And, uh, Wendy Gavaski, that's the owner. She's also really great. Um, I've worked with Rocky boot and I think that, uh, in the past and just with a military background, my husband actually wears Rocky boot all the time. So, um, uh, that's what he wears every day for work. And so I really like the, they have always been really supportive, even whenever I haven't worked with them. Um, and now that I work with DSG, they're still following me and like my posts and they've been just they're a really great brand that I really like. Um, one of the first people that ever reached out to me was Gut Daddy Knives, and they are a small company, U.S. based, and uh, I really 
they are not out here trying to take over the knife world, but they make a quality product and they're just, they just been really great too. Uh, good people. Um, that's like, I love that. I love whenever I can resonate with the whole management team, you know, the products are great. Um, so yeah, I've worked with a few companies. I mean, there's been others, but those are ones that really stand out to me that I, um, that I really, really like. There are so many companies to choose from. Sometimes it's really hard to keep track of it, but those that have kind of your confidence and have great people behind them, that's really what I think sells a company. And Rachelle is very great. I got to fish with her and her husband, I think at the beginning of COVID, it's now almost three years and I profiled their operation. Smoke hole is beautiful. If you ever get a chance, you got to come. But her, her and her husband are phenomenal and I love profiling their story. And I'm glad that you're working with her at DSG. Bethany, where would you like to defer my listeners to? How can they connect with you, learn about how you do homeschooling and uh, and uh, wrestling with, you know, balancing motherhood and, and pursuit of the outdoors? Do you have uh, any sources or any sort of websites that are going to be uh, coming out there? Yeah, so I uh, you can always find me on Instagram, Bethany Bethard. I'm also as our abundant home on there. But I am uh, starting a website, Wild and Gathered, and it's going to be a website where the outdoors meets home and everything that I share on my platforms, but with a little bit more information, some articles. I have some amazing women that are coming alongside me wanting to also pour into the site with their knowledge, Um, hunting, shooting, um, homemaking, homeschooling, a little bit of faith. Uh, It's going to be great, motherhood. And so um, I think it's going to give me an opportunity to share more. Uh, I do write mainly, you know, right now for hunting publications and I, I write for Everest Outdoor News. Uh, I have an outdoor column, Raising Outdoor Kids over there. Um, and so I think it's going to give me more of a space to share other sides of my life that people are interested in as well. And um, obviously expound on maybe some more like personal hunting stories and, you know, how I get it done. So yeah, Wild and Gathered, it'll be launching hopefully next month. And that's where you can find me. Very exciting. We're going to send everyone to your various social media your websites and all to connect with you. And we really appreciate you coming on to the podcast, Bethany. I really appreciate you coming to speak with me and share your story. And I hope we can continue and have you back on uh, to update us on what you've been working on in the future. And I hope to see you before our next POMA conference in South Carolina next May. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it and I can't wait to be on again. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.